And so the reform we need here is, I would say, a commitment by countries at the UN to actually be willing to pay what the peacekeepers need to achieve their mandated task. It's no good sending them there on the cheap. Welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, the entirely student-run podcast out of Johns Hopkins University. You're listening to our second episode in our Foreign Policy Toolbox series, where we unravel the mysteries of the most important institutions, concepts, and policies that decision makers actually use to implement foreign policy. In today's episode, we're discussing the United Nations peacekeepers. What do UN peacekeepers actually do? Where are they deployed today? And how have their mandates changed over time? To help us answer these questions, today on the podcast, we're joined by Dr. Paul Williams. Paul D. Williams is professor in the Elliott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University. Dr. Williams has previously served as a non-resident senior advisor at the International Peace Institute in New York, where he helped manage the Providing for Peacekeeping project. He has written several books about peace operations, including Understanding Peacekeeping, The Oxford Handbook of UN Peacekeeping Operations, and Enhancing U.S. Support for Peace Operations in Africa. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Okay, Professor Williams, thank you so much for joining us today on the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thanks very much for the invitation. To get us started, Professor, I'd like to just ask the most basic question, which is what really are UN peacekeepers? What are they meant to do? Who are they, et cetera? Sure, well, that's a good place to start, right? So UN peacekeeping was invented in about the late 1940s, early 1950s by the United Nations. And it was really just a a policy instrument to help manage um, armed conflicts around the world. So both conflicts between states uh, or um, civil war types of um, uh, fighting. And so initially, it was just soldiers that were sent to these uh, other people's wars to manage them uh, that would wear the famous blue helmets or blue berets and, and paint their vehicles white. And so it started off as a job for soldiers. And now more recently, it's a mixture of um, soldiers, police and civilians. So in terms of the budget for UN peacekeepers, where where does that come from? How is that determined? Sure. Another good question. So the money is very difficult to predict in advance. Yeah. So the problem we have about paying for peacekeeping is you don't know the future. So you don't know from year to year how much of a peacekeeping bill you might need or how many new missions or what crises are going to occur. So the way that the UN pays for peacekeeping is to do it on a sort of reimbursement system the year afterwards. So you, uh, whatever gets authorised by the UN Security Council in terms of missions, all of the UN member states then agree to pay a percentage slice of the overall annual bill. So at the moment, for example, the annual peacekeeping bill for 2019-2020 was estimated to be about $6.5 billion dollars. Uh, The highest it's ever been is about $8.4 billion a year. And so what happens is then when that total is finalized, all of the UN's member states have a percentage of that overall total that they will pay into. Uh, The United States and China pay in the most, but it goes all the way down to all 193 UN members, and they all chip in their bit according to their um, assessed rate. So you mentioned the Security Council. Can you explain to our listeners what the mechanism is for deploying UN peacekeepers 
and where they're currently located um, at this moment in time? Sure. So the short answer is to say that a UN peacekeeping mission is established and authorized by the UN Security Council. That's the 15 members that sit on the council. Five of them are permanent veto-wielding members uh, and 10 are elected. And so missions are authorized and created by those um, Security Council members. At the moment, around the world, we've got 13 peacekeeping operations deployed. Um, they're mainly deployed in Africa and the Middle East, um, but there's also one in, uh, in South Asia, in Kashmir, between India uh, and Pakistan, um, and one in uh, the Balkans, in, in Kosovo. But all the rest of them are in uh, Africa and Asia. And at the moment, they have about 80,000 um, uniformed peacekeepers, that is soldiers and police, and about 12,000 or so civilians are also in those, those 13 missions. Just to follow up on that, Professor, real quick is, so what do the civilians do in the, in the peacekeeping operations? What is their role? So civilians will play a number of different roles there. So one would be the sort of mission support and administrative and bureaucratic functions. Yeah, if you're running large groups of foreigners, you know, thousands and thousands of, of foreigners in somebody else's country, just all the support structures, administrative support you need, that's one side of the equation. But then civilians will also play more sort of explicitly political and, and conflict management roles. And here there's a very long potential list, right? But just to give you some of the more common ones, there might be civil affairs or political affairs officers that help monitor the human rights situation in a country, or there might be political affairs officers that help facilitate free and fair election processes, or civilians that might monitor a, a disarmament and demobilization program. So there's a long, long list um, sort of thing, but that's some good examples of what civilians might be doing. Well, all right. So to move to a, a different gear, um, Professor, we are interested in the kind of history of UN peacekeepers. So you touched on this a little bit right at the start of our conversation, but I'm wondering if you could kind of delve into why the peacekeepers, um, well, first, when, how, and why the peacekeepers were created, I guess. Yeah. So in the late 1940s is when UN peacekeeping was created. And at that point, obviously, we're getting into a Cold War situation. Uh, and so one element of understanding what UN peacekeeping was for was a sort of preventative diplomatic function, whereby we were trying to stop, or the United Nations was trying to stop wars escalating and drawing in the major superpowers of the United States and the, the Soviet Union. And so the first part of the story is in those Cold War terms, right, as a, as a mechanism for sort of managing and hopefully de-escalating uh, conflicts in the Cold War setting. But then there was a sort of second reason why um, some of the early missions got started, and that was more to do with the process of decolonization. So obviously from the late 1940s, 1950s onwards, the UN member state numbers of them are growing as more and more um, places around the world are, are decolonizing. And so some of the early UN missions were to help that process of decolonization unfold. So that's that's really the main sort of two main reasons why we see them created. Sure, Professor. And moving forward, how did the mandate of UN peacekeeping missions change over time? Um, from my you know previous reading, my understanding is that basically, like you said, when they started, they had this preventative diplomatic function, but then eventually that shifted into kind of a more 
um, I guess the right term is peace, peace building function. So maybe if you could speak to that a little bit, that would be, that would be great. Sure. So the way I would encourage you to think of this is that peacekeeping is sort of constructivism in action, if you like, right? Or it's sort of diplomatic constructivism in action. And what I mean by that is it's literally what has been created by diplomats in international society. Peacekeeping really is whatever those diplomats make it. And this gets to your point about the mandates. Yeah? So early on in the 1940s and 50s, they were dealing with particular types of armed conflicts, right? Uh, mainly interstate conflicts, disputes between states that were fighting over territory. So, for example, in between Israel and Palestine or India and Pakistan over Kashmir or a bit later in Cyprus, for example, the instrument or the mandate was to you know, monitor a ceasefire that had developed between those belligerent parties to maybe help create um, a buffer zone or a demilitarized zone. And this is where the label of the thin blue line, right, originally came from to describe the peacekeepers. As I mentioned with their sort of famous blue helmets and blue berets, they would literally interposition between the belligerent armies and keep ceasefires and keep demilitarized zones. And so in that context, you know, the mandates were quite short. Uh, yeah, it didn't take a long mandate to say, can you observe and monitor a particular ceasefire or demilitarized zone? But then what we saw happened, again, is constructivism in action. They had to deal with a different set of problems and a different type or character of wars. And so from um, uh, alongside interstate conflicts, the UN also deployed peacekeepers to more civil war settings. And there, of course, when you're dealing with an ongoing um, civil war, you've got one government and potentially lots of different rebel groups. The situation becomes a lot more complicated. And so when you're trying to manage a conflict and resolve a civil war, you normally have to get involved in domestic types of governance issues, right, to do with the rule of law or ensuring a free and fair election, or as we talked about earlier, demobilizing and disarming um, belligerents. And so when you're in those types of settings, your mandates generally tended to be a lot longer. There was a lot more challenging tasks when you're trying to implement a peace deal in a civil war setting. And so in those types of contexts, the diplomats drew up much longer mandates. Uh, and now we're not talking about a few sentences to say observe and monitor. We're talking about pages and pages of a Security Council resolution. Um, many of the missions after 1990, the mandating resolutions are like over 10 pages long. You know, they're several thousand words uh, in length. And they've actually become known more recently in sort of a pejorative term, the Christmas tree mandates. Um, people refer to this label of a, you know, you think of adorning different items and baubles on a Christmas tree. The idea was here that anyone at the Security Council that wanted to add in a particular mandate task would just get to hang it on the tree. And so, yes, we've nowadays, most of these missions operating in sort of civil war settings have got very big mandates. Um, they would include things like helping to facilitate humanitarian assistance and humanitarian relief deliveries. Um, maybe, as I said, election monitoring and support for free and fair elections, maybe disarmament and demobilization programs. Uh, from the late 1990s, civilian protection was a very big part of the, the mandates that peacekeepers were given. And so, yeah, you can see over the time that we've gone now from the 1940s to current day, mandates have tended to get a lot longer because of that sort of civil war setting in which they increasingly operate. 
And I think that's a great segue into my next question, which is given this lengthy history, their change in mandates over time, um, are there like any peacekeeping missions that are particularly notable for their successes or their failures um, and kind of changed how people thought about peacekeeping? Yes, there is. Right? So the United Nations has now conducted 72 different peacekeeping operations. So out of those 72, as you would expect, there's a very mixed record of success and failure. And it depends, obviously, how you uh, or what criteria you use to measure the effectiveness of peacekeeping operations as to whether you will put you know, each of those 72 missions in the sort of uh, failure or um, uh, success box. The way I think about it, at least, is peacekeeping operations have generally been very successful when the belligerents themselves want to end the war. And so if the job of peacekeepers is to help a group of belligerents implement a ceasefire that they want to have or implement a peace deal that they've signed up to willingly, we now have lots of very good evidence that most of the time UN peacekeepers can do that really well and they're very effective at consolidating um, peace and stopping the recurrence of, of war. But at a general level, if the belligerents don't want to stop fighting, and certain armed factions in the country, particularly in the civil war settings that I mentioned before, if they want to continue fighting for whatever reason, or they want to spoil peace processes, then this makes it much more difficult for peacekeeping operations to be successful. And so we've seen, you know, unfortunately, we've seen peacekeepers have to deploy to both of those types of situations. So the biggest failures that you would most commonly see referred to would probably take place in the early 1990s. And these were the missions in Somalia, Rwanda, and the former Yugoslavia, where in all of these cases, the wars didn't stop. The belligerents continued fighting, and in Rwanda and Bosnia, they didn't just fight, they actually committed genocidal violence against civilians as well. So in those situations, the peacekeeping missions really struggled and didn't manage to stop, obviously, that genocidal violence in Rwanda or um, Srebrenica. But on the other hand, you've got some very good examples of missions that really did help create stable peace. I would point to a few examples in Africa of the positives here. One would be the transition in Namibia and securing the independence of Namibia in the late 1980s, um, getting South African forces out of there uh, is a big success story for the UN. Ending the civil war in Mozambique uh, in the early 1990s, you know, a long, more than a decade, very bloody civil war there, peacekeepers helped end it. And probably the most successful ones more recently, I would point to are the cluster of missions in West Africa that took place in the 1990s and early 2000s. Uh, these were the UN missions in Sierra Leone, Liberia, and uh, the Ivory Coast. And there we've seen over a period of about a, a decade and a, a bit, um, those peacekeeping missions have helped transform that part of the Mano River region in West Africa from really one of the world's most bloody conflict hotspots to a much more stable area. Now, if you look at Sierra Leone or Liberia today compared to the uh, early and mid 1990s, there's uh, big improvements. So those are, are some of the examples I would point to. So given this mixed bag of successes and failures and the long history that goes along with that, how have these different events affected the credibility of UN peacekeepers and how people see them today? Yeah, well, again, that's a mixed bag as well, right? So 
peacekeepers get assessed and looked at by different audiences. And so we just need to break down the different sort of audiences that are relevant here. First of all is the Security Council in New York that sets the mandates and authorizes the mission, right? It really is important as to whether the Security Council members think a mission is working or not, because if they don't think it's credible, they will end the mission and, and stop it right there. And then a second audience are the contributing countries themselves, right? So the, the parts of the UN membership that actually provide soldiers, police, or civilians to work on these peacekeeping missions, again, they need to see these missions as credible and reasonably effective, or else what's the point of having your soldiers and police in them? And so that's the second audience we need to pay attention to. And then the third audience um, are to do now with the domestic uh, setting that they deploy into. First of all, the host state government. So remember, UN Blue Helmet peacekeeping missions are not invasions. Uh, they're not what we might call military interventions in the sense that they always have the consent of the host state government, right? They they're legally uh, have a basis of permission to be there. So how does the host state government feel about this mission? Does it think the mission is effective and credible? And again, if a host state changes its mind on that, we might see and we have seen cases where they've basically expelled the peacekeepers because they don't agree with what they're doing anymore. And then final audience, which is important, is not the local government, but the local civilian populations and the other belligerents, whoever the um, armed groups are. And there, as you can imagine, by definition, if we're talking about war zones, the local populations are never going to speak with one voice on this issue, right? There's always going to be divisions and arguments and differences of opinion. But it really does matter, particularly if a peacekeeping mission has a mandate to protect civilians, it really does matter how the local population sees that mission. And there we know a few things fairly well about this. You know, number one is local civilian populations, if they don't feel they're getting protected by UN peacekeepers, they're obviously not going to see that mission as, as credible. Whereas if they feel that the peacekeeping mission is actually a useful source of protection, you will often see local civilians actually flock towards UN peacekeeper bases and areas where they're deployed because they're worried about <laughs> what might happen to them from other armed groups, either rebels or, or government. So that's, that's how we need to think about the credibility of these missions. They've got to balance all four of those different audiences and remain reasonably legitimate and credible with all of them at the same time. Professor, on that note, could you maybe provide our listeners with a example of a time when the domestic audience that the UN peacekeepers are working with does not view their mission as credible. Um, is that, has that been a case in, in recent years? And if so, how big of a problem has that been? So it, it's varied, right? Again, we've got 72 examples to choose from. So I'll, I'll pick a couple of big ones. First of all, the worst cases, right, would be what I mentioned before in terms of genocidal violence. So probably the worst examples we've had were in um, Rwanda in 1994 when UNAMIR, as it was known, the UN assistance mission in Rwanda, was not able to stop the, the genocide unfolding. Uh, we should say it wasn't actually officially in the mandate of that mission to stop genocide. It was a, a mission deployed under Chapter 6 of the UN Charter to help monitor a, a peace deal. But the local population, obviously, particularly the, um, the Tutsi population, who was on the receiving end of most of the genocidal violence, were very upset about the limited role that the peacekeepers were playing. 
And uh, another uh, example of genocidal violence was in the summer of 1995 in Srebrenica, in uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, where UMPRAFOR, which ironically stands for the UN Protection Force in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Um, in Srebrenica, there was a contingent of uh, peacekeepers from the Netherlands, and they were basically overpowered and forced uh, out uh, by the uh, Serbian army. And thousands of men and boys were massacred in, in the now infamous Srebrenica massacre, and um, the women and, and lots of children bust out of the area. So those would be the sort of worst examples in the whole history of UN peacekeeping where they, they lost credibility. But on the more positive side, they're not as famous and they're certainly not covered in the media as often. But it's back to what I said before, right? Uh, people vote with their feet often in, in conflict zones. And when they fear for their lives, it's important that they head for UN operating bases and UN protection sites. And so a good example I'll give you is to end here, right, is from the UN mission in, in South Sudan, which was deployed after South Sudan became a new independent state in 2011, after its referendum. A very bloody civil war broke out in December of 2013. And as the, some of the soldiers were deliberately targeting civilians, thousands of the civilians in the capital city of Juba and elsewhere fled to escape from these massacres. And where did they flee to? They fled to UN peacekeeper bases. And the mission then created what were called protection of civilian sites. Uh, they were set up on obviously an emergency basis. They were supposed originally to last for only 72 hours or three days, but now nearly seven years on, some of those POC sites are still in existence and still trying to keep civilians safe from different armed groups in, in South Sudan. Well, Professor, now that we've kind of covered the the gist of UN peacekeeping and the history of UN peacekeeping, I'd like to now move to kind of more contemporary challenges. Um, in your recent article that you sent us, Professor in International Affairs, which um, we'll disseminate to our audience as well, um, you talk about a peacekeeping trilemma. Would you just describe that a little bit? What is the peacekeeping trilemma? Yeah, of course. Um, so a trilemma is a term that is often used in economics more frequently than, than international politics. But it's a situation that means you're trying to pursue three reasonable goals, right? You've got three plausible goals and objectives. But logically and, and sort of practically, you can't achieve all three of those things at the same time. So like a dilemma over two things, right? The trilemma is which of those three are you going to sort of lose out in your attempt to try and prioritize and achieve them? And so the peacekeeping trilemma, I just sort of apply that concept to what the UN Security Council has been trying to do with its peacekeeping operations over the last few decades. And there, I think you see a, a quite clear trilemma. So the Security Council is trying to do three things with its peacekeeping missions. Number one, it's trying to maximize success, as we've just talked about, yeah? And success means, can peacekeepers implement these long, complicated mandate tasks, even in high-threat environments like ongoing conflict zones and, and civil war? So objective one is to maximize the success of these peacekeeping missions by achieving their mandates. Objective two, though, is to minimize costs, the Security Council and the UN's member states also want to do this as cheaply as they reasonably can. So they put an emphasis on efficiency and cost saving. And like I said before, you know, the, the annual budget of UN peacekeeping has never been over $8.5 billion a year. 
An eight and a half billion dollars at one level is a big number, of course, but it's very cheap in military terms, right? For the UN to be able to deploy over 100,000 troops for a year in the field for eight and a half billion dollars, this is a tiny percentage of what it costs NATO, for example, to deploy peacekeepers to Afghanistan. It's a tiny, tiny, like less than 1% of the, of the annual global military expenditure. So that's the second objective, keep the cost down. And the third objective is to minimize the risk to UN peacekeepers. What's called the safety and security agenda here, right? Of course, the UN is gonna run out of contributing countries very quickly if it deploys peacekeepers and then loads of them get killed or injured or sick. And so by the trilemma, what I mean is the Security Council has to balance those three good objectives, right? It's right that we want success, we want to keep the costs reasonable financially, and we want to reduce the risk to peacekeepers in terms of keeping them alive and, and safe. And so the trouble is, you can't really do all three of those things equally at the same time. And that's the real problem here, because if you want to keep peacekeepers really safe and secure, you either need to give them really good equipment or you need to give them more numbers so that they can overwhelm opposition. But of course, that raises your costs. And again, if you want to achieve success in you know, an ongoing civil war setting like Mali or South Sudan or the Congo, you're going to need, right? if you want to achieve your mandated tasks, you're going to need lots of peacekeepers and this is going to cost you a lot of money, right? So again, it's very difficult to get, or I would say impossible, to get all three of these objectives prioritized at the same time. So the trilemma is how do you choose between those three reasonable um, objectives? So after facing this trilemma, um, when determining how, um, how much money and where to send peacekeepers, uh, the peacekeepers are then placed boots on the ground in these different nation states. So once operational, there's a whole other series of challenges that they face. Um, I'm thinking about like the complex mandates that they were assigned, um, limits on like the use of force. Um, what would you say are the biggest challenges faced by peacekeepers on the ground once they're actually deployed to these nations? Good question. Um, I would say the biggest challenges come in those civil war settings that I talked about earlier, yeah? And there's probably three big ones that I'd like to point out. One to do with disarming armed groups and rebel factions, one to do with protecting civilians, and one to do with what nowadays is called stabilization. Um, so just quickly on each of those three, one of the hardest tasks that peacekeepers will face is the prospect of having to forcibly disarm armed groups who don't want to disarm and demobilize. But sometimes a peace process calls for, in fact, quite often a peace process will call for the demobilization and disarmament of a number of the um, rebel factions, maybe to lead to a new integrated national security force or army. Yeah? But one of the most difficult tasks you can give to peacekeepers is to disarm those armed groups if they don't want to be disarmed. And we've seen that probably most famously in Somalia in the early 1990s, when one faction um, controlled by Mohammed Farah Idid didn't want to disarm and they fought back against peacekeepers and it led to a big spiral of, of problems. So that's one problem. The second big problem peacekeepers face is protecting civilians. 
And this has been a mandate that has been given to virtually every mission since 1999, starting with Sierra Leone. And the simple reason that that was given is, as I mentioned before, peacekeepers were heavily criticized, and rightly, in my opinion, that they didn't protect civilians in Rwanda's genocide or Bosnia, um, its genocide in Srebrenica. And so after a period of debate and introspection in the 1990s, the UN said, right, we're going to basically make it our default position to ensure that blue helmet peacekeepers are not bystanders to massacres and atrocities against civilians. But of course, protecting civilians in an ongoing conflict zone is logically, it's an impossible agenda. You can't protect every civilian from every threat all of the time when you've got relatively small numbers of peacekeepers strung out in these huge countries like Sudan or South Sudan or, or Congo. So civilian protection has come with a huge set of, of difficult challenges. And then thirdly, finally, what I would call stabilization. And this is the word that's been used to describe uh, four of the UN's peacekeeping missions in Haiti, in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, in Central African Republic and in Mali. And here, Peacekeepers are actually are sometimes to confront armed groups who either are not part of a peace process or don't want to be part of a peace process and want to spoil that peace process. And peacekeepers have been asked to use sort of coercion, military coercion, to try and bring those groups either back into the peace table or to stop them from basically holding territory and wrecking the peace process in other ways. And as you can imagine, if you start to threaten force against armed groups, uh, don't be surprised if they start to threaten force back. And, and so we've seen actual you know, combat that UN peacekeepers have got into. We see uh, some of these groups deliberately trying to blow up peacekeepers with IEDs uh, and all sorts of remote devices. We see attempts to you know, basically assassinate them, uh, peacekeepers at, at distance. And it's hardest, I would say, when it's not just rebel groups that are targeting peacekeepers, sometimes it's even the host state governments that have targeted peacekeepers. Uh, the armies in Democratic Republic of Congo and South Sudan and Sudan, for example, have all sometimes actively targeted UN peacekeepers, even though their government has given permission for them to be there. So those are the three, I think, really difficult challenges that uh, peacekeepers are asked to deal with. Yeah, and I want to ask a follow-up to kind of the second point that you brought up, which is something that kind of keeps coming up in our discussion, is that relationship between peacekeepers and the civilian populations in which they're embedded in. And so my question is, um, we talked about genocide. There's also been um, more recently like conversations about acts of gender violence committed by peacekeepers. And so I'm curious, um, like, peacekeeping operations have been criticized for causing a lot of harm in the populations that they're deployed within. So how can these harms be reduced and what are some of the steps um, that we could that they could take to reduce them? Yeah, good question. So in the academic world and policy world, these are normally discussed as what are called unintended consequences of peacekeeping missions, yeah? So what we mean by that is the Security Council is not sending peacekeepers to these countries <laughs> thinking that they're going to commit sexual exploitation and abuse or that they're going to maybe torture some civilians or they're going to engage in illegal trading. So these are unintended effects and consequences that sometimes happen in, in peacekeeping missions. But there are three that I would point to or three types of them that I would point to. One is actual harm, physical harm 
of civilian populations where peacekeepers have sometimes sadly you know shot killed tortured injured physically um, civilians the second type of harm that we see done is more through sort of illicit trading um, peacekeepers have sometimes helped fuel sort of organized criminal rackets in some of their um, uh, zones normally as i said by sort of trading in black market um, or gray market activities and that sort of is detrimental obviously to the general sort of official economy and then the third uh, one as you mentioned is to do with sexual exploitation and abuse of local populations and that it's that last one that's probably captured most of the attention in terms of um, media coverage and and the sort of political spotlight falling on it but yes this has been going on sadly for a long time uh, probably the the biggest sort of international debate early on that was had about sexual exploitation and abuse in peacekeeping came in the early 1990s in Cambodia. Uh, the UN transitional mission in Cambodia between 1990 and 93 was the first time that really international diplomatic spotlight focused on the fact that peacekeepers were visiting brothels and prostitutes and were at least accused by some locals of sort of spreading potentially HIV AIDS uh, amongst the local population. And so really since then in the early 1990s, there's been a growing sort of um, focus and, and spotlight on these problems uh, and trying to think of ways to, to reduce uh, the amount of um, uh, allegations of sexual exploitation and abuse that peacekeepers receive. So, Professor Williams, we've covered the challenges peacekeepers face through the trilemma, the challenges they face once they're actually on the ground, and now the challenges posed by unintended consequences of having peacekeepers there. So my question is, looking towards the future, what reforms you know, should the UN look to undertake to make this system better, essentially? That's the huge $64 million question or $64 billion question, whatever is the right amount of money these days. Um, yeah, look, so the, the way to answer that is the UN is constantly in a process of reforming its peacekeeping operations. Yeah, these are, as I said, these are huge globalized efforts involving potentially dozens and dozens of different countries in dozens of dozens of different countries around the world. And so at one level, there's just a constant process of trying to reform things and make them better. Um, and the, the areas where that's focused are the following. So if you think of how peacekeeping missions are put together, there's basically three groups of actors that are key. There's the Security Council that actually mandates and authorizes the missions. Then there's the countries that finance and pay for them which is mainly the sort of the OECD world plus China sort of thing, pay for the majority of the, the bill. And then the third group of countries are those that actually provide most of the peacekeepers. And for the last few decades, most of the peacekeepers have come from African and Asian countries, uh, not the NATO world. That's not been the case since the early 1990s when NATO countries were heavily deployed. So the way I think about reforms is, you know, what are each of those groups want to do in terms of reforming peacekeeping. So firstly, you know, mandates. We need to think about reforming the mandates. And as I said, they've been pejoratively referred to as Christmas tree mandates because they're so long and so complicated. The UN mission in South Sudan, for example, has over 200 tasks. 200, <laughs> I need to repeat that. Over 200 tasks that they're supposed to engage in in South Sudan. 
this is this is just impossible, right? So reform number one is about slimming the number of mandated tasks down and really focusing on what are the key few priorities that the peacekeepers can do. The second area of reform then is to do with that second group of countries, who pays the bills? So a second area of reform is how can we give peacekeeping a more sort of sustainable financial basis? And crucially, the debate here is, are we willing to invest more money for a better product, i.e. peace, right? Really what we're trying to achieve here is peace. So how much are we willing to invest and pay for to get stable peace in places like South Sudan and Sierra Leone and, and DR Congo, et cetera? And so the reform we need here is, I would say, a commitment by countries at the UN to actually be willing to pay what the peacekeepers need to achieve their mandated tasks. It's no good sending them there on the cheap and not investing in the proper equipment and capabilities and training that they need. And if we send them on the cheap, we shouldn't expect perfect results. So I think the second area of reform is how are countries at the UN really get together and like, how are we going to pay for this in a sustainable way? And do we always have to put money first or do we put the mandated tasks and the goal of peace first? And then we'll see what the bill is like at the end of the day. And then the third areas of reform are related to that third set of countries, right? The countries that are actually deploying peacekeepers in the field. And there, there's two issues. We've already mentioned one of them, right? Accountability and performance. Accountability is what we just talked about, really, right? You know, resolving the unintended harmful consequences and making sure that when peacekeepers commit abuses and crimes, they are punished and, and held accountable for that. And so one reform agenda is precisely trying to do that, to make sure that there's pressure on contributing countries to punish their, their personnel if they commit uh, crimes and abuse. And then the final part of the reform agenda is what's known as performance. And this is really talking about, as the name suggests, yeah, how can we ensure that the peacekeepers get to the field ready to perform as best they can? And this is partly about improving training and equipment and preparedness, you know, and, and what sort of, you know, literally what sort of technology and equipment do peacekeepers need to do their jobs, right? Do we need more drones? Do we need more helicopter and aviation units? Do we need more engineering units? Do we need more medical or better medical units, et cetera? So preparedness and training for that is part of it, but also um, performance in the field in terms of the political will for peacekeepers to actually protect civilians or maybe disarm rebel groups or stabilize a peace process against spoilers or ultimately you know, stop genocidal violence. That's a hugely difficult set of tasks when it's not your war, right? But it's somebody else's war. But that's the reform agenda. We want peacekeepers to perform as well as they can in those difficult circumstances. Well, all right, Professor Williams, I want to thank you for providing our audience with such an educational overview of the UN peacekeepers and for providing us some food for thought for thinking about UN peacekeepers in the future. So thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and to the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.